it's like a little bit of magic and a little bit of just like fingers crossed, you know, you've done everything right. You did your homework, you shot it, and then you turn it over to the lab and you're all basically waiting to answer that single question of, did it turn out? Did it turn out? I mean, it's really, it's as simple as that. It's like, you don't know. And at any point, you know, the, the, the loader could have flashed the mag. There could have been a hair in the gate. Someone could have screwed up at the lab. Like there's all these places where a single person or, you know, event could screw things. Now we're looking at stuff on these incredible monitors and it's like, what you see is what you get. And, you know, as a DP, one of the things you're always doing, you know, if you were lucky enough to even have a monitor was you'd be trying to convince the director but it's not going to look like that. So there is a lot of trust and collaboration that, you know, it's just different now. It's just changed. Let's Shoot with Pete Chapman is a podcast on directing for anybody that's quite simply ever watched anything. Pete converses with a wide range of fellow directors, writers, actors, showrunners, producers, executives, and more on a journey to determine just what makes a good director and why we'll always need stories. The Director is Pete Chapman's digital studio, built on the pillars of craftsmanship that ensure a unique vision. I'm talking about story, innovation, perspective. Learn more about The Director, and better yet, get your official director's chair wear by visiting www.drctr.video. That's drctr.video. All right, what's up, people? This is Pete Chapman. Welcome to episode five of Let's Shoot with Pete Chapman. Uh, today, my guest is Michael Spiller. Um, he is a producing director. Uh, he started as a cinematographer. We had the pleasure of meeting back in July of 2017. Uh, before I directed my first episode of TV, the DGA had instituted a, uh, an orientation program for new directors doing their first episode of TV to uh, get a workshop from working directors. And uh, the folks that facilitated this for me and my group of uh, directors were uh, Paris Barclay, who was the president of the DGA at the time, um, Michael Spiller, and I also believe that Todd Holland joined us. Um, and I've developed relationships with all of these gentlemen, uh, super talented directors, great people. Um, Spiller introduced me to the app Scriptation, uh, which we just did a seminar on or a webinar on uh, with the talented Valerie Weiss, another director, and that's on YouTube. I'll put that in the show notes for y'all. Y'all can check that out. I wanted to get a director on here who could speak to the full kind of storytelling ecosystem. Someone who's worked as a cinematographer, someone who has worked as a director, and then the producing director, for those that might be unfamiliar, is the person who actually, uh, typically on a one hour drama, but in Spiller's case, he has done it on half-hour single-camera comedies. They are there to not only have a hand in hiring directors, but they also have a hand in um, assisting a guest director, a visiting director, as they navigate their way through their episode. And so they are a bit of an insurance policy on 
the integrity of the show being replicated episode after episode, even though you could have 12 to 15 different people coming through and sitting in that director's chair over the course of a season. Um, it's a great conversation. I hope you enjoy. It's two Jersey boys chopping it up about the industry, storytelling, and this thing we love to do as episodic television directors. Enjoy it. This interview was recorded in mid-June. Roll sound. Speed. The interview. Take one. Action. Let's talk about New Jersey, because I'm, I'm a Jersey guy. I grew up in South Orange, um, and I, I we'll get to it later, but you did um, a great deal of Scrubs episodes with the guy I went to high school with. Um, tell me about like growing up in New Jersey and how that kind of led to uh, getting involved with cameras and directing and all that stuff. Well, I, I was born in New Brunswick. Um, my parents were students at Rutgers and uh, I have very few distinct memories of my growing up in New Jersey because we moved to Brooklyn. Basically, I was like, wait a second, I'm in New Jersey. This is not cool. We got to get out of here. And I was five. I moved to Brooklyn. Um, Grew up around the corner from Spike Lee. Um, there were actually a lot of filmmakers who wound up coming out of my, you know, within like a three block radius of where I grew up. Um, and that move was very uh, key to, to my becoming a filmmaker, I think, because first of all, the neighborhood itself was very kind of larger than life. It was, uh, it was predominantly Italian and you know mob, mob based you know a lot of a lot of mob in the neighborhood and uh i like to say that my my childhood was like the first 20 minutes of goodfellas <laughs> and uh-huh. it could have gone either way but it, it was interesting because <clears throat> i was both an observer and a participant you know so i was after you know many years of sort of being an outsider and getting my ass kicked because my hair was long and my parents were hippies and, uh, you know, and I wasn't hundred percent Italian. Um, I, I discovered that, that I could actually pass. So <clears throat> I sort of adopted a persona of, you know, a kid in the streets and I started running errands for the guys at the social club and, you know, things went along and it was much better. It was a much better life. Uh, to be part of this kind of crazy scene. And, you know, my Brooklyn accent got really, really strong. Uh, I learned how to speak Sicilian in the local grocery store where I worked. And so I was part of this whole exciting community. But then I'd go home and I would step back and I was like, okay, I'm the straight A student. And, you know, my parents didn't really know the degree of things I was doing. And, uh, you know, so I had sort of one foot in the world as a participant, and then also I, I could observe it and tell the stories to, you know, my friends and huh. kids in school and stuff. That's interesting. So it's fascinating. That's like, I, I feel like, I remember a moment, like, I remember being young and not necessarily knowing I would be like a storyteller, but like things would be happening and I'd kind of be looking at them from, from 30,000 feet at the same time. Mm-hmm. Like, 
like whether it was like embarrassing for me, I'd be like, wow, this is super embarrassing and a moment I wish never happened. But there's also some humor in it if I were able to like weave it into like a story with somebody else uh, having to go through it. Um, it's interesting to hear this too, because I didn't, it sounds like you should add actor to your resume. Well, you know, my, my SAG dues are current, Pete. Uh, <laughs> um, so yeah. Yeah, no, no question. There was, there was a degree of playing a role in, in my childhood, you know? And I think that if, you know, years of therapy have helped me sort of unpack this and you know, understand that, yes, I mean, look, there's no point in dwelling on the past, but, you know, understanding how it's affected my present and can continue to affect my present. And, uh, you know, it was a bit of a chameleonic lifestyle, which I think, you know, and, and I think this speaks to what you're saying too, is like it can serve me in my job because yes. I'm able to put myself in a place that might be unfamiliar and have, you know, have an understanding of it. It's like, you know, when I travel, I have a good ear for language and a good ear for accents. Um, and I find that if I'm in a place for you know, more than a couple of days, I wind up speaking as much as I can, or I adopt, you know, kind of vocal mannerisms of wherever it is. And I'm not making fun of anyone. Right. It's just me absorbing it and kind of interpreting it as, you know, as I yeah. would. I'm going to turn off my notifications there. So that <laughs> yeah, you know, it's, I think also when you have to be chameleonic, which is a great word, you're, you're often like beat by beat, you're, you're running through these metrics of what's the response here. And essentially that's what you're guiding actors through. You know, like there's this moment and then you're making this choice because of this reason. And that's kind of how you had to navigate, you know, moving through life at that time. How did, how'd you get from there to picking up a camera? Well, I mean, there are two sort of key events in that. Um, well, it's probably more than that, but some specific ones are when at a certain point in my life, when I was probably 12, uh, 11 or 12, uh, I had an uncle who, not a, not a great guy, uh, very, very into guns, uh, had a lot of guns in the house, and I was kind of fascinated by them as a young kid might be. And I didn't spend a lot of time with this guy, but I got in my head that, that I wanted to go hunting. Uh, in my grandfather's, there's some wilderness, uh, former farmland, you know, adjacent to his property. <clears throat> I thought I, he could take me hunting. And he said, well, how about instead of hunting? And first of all, if, if I could have convinced him, he, he would have said, We'll do a bow and arrow. You're not going out there with a gun. Um, right. But he said, instead of hunting, why don't we, you know, cause he's like, what, what appeals to you about it? I said, well, you know, the idea of going through the woods and stalking an animal and all that stuff. And, and I'm a huge animal lover, don't get me wrong. But he said, well, why don't we just take their picture and you'll get to do all the things that 
you say you want to do related to hunting, but when you encounter the animal, you get to take your shot and you both get to walk away. And, and that, you know, had a profound impact on me because I really didn't want to kill animals. I wanted to, you know, I, I thought I wanted to like have guns and be cool. Right. But so we did that. So I started, started taking pictures and then I was a huge movie fan. Um, and began making my own movies at 12, 12 and a half, um, with a little Super 8 camera that I bought money for my daily newspaper route. Um, and I directed them, I acted them, I edited them. Um, and that, that was really cool. But then I guess when I was 15, my parents, I went to Paris with my parents for like 10 days on a winter break. We knew someone who had an apartment there and, you know, so scraped, you know, saved up the money, went and none of us had ever been to Europe before. Um, and it was just amazing. I mean, walking through the streets and feeling like I was in a movie, you know, every movie I'd ever seen, um, you know, though of course half of them were probably shot in the back lot of Universal, but, um, and I spent a lot of time on my own. And I, I studied French and Italian. I sorry, I studied Spanish and Italian as a kid. So I didn't speak French, but I picked up enough to be able to order a beer. And I had like a long trench coat and smoking cigarettes and drinking beer and, and just wandering around Paris doing my thing. You know, my parents had the Michelin guide book and we're like, oh, Victor Hugo lived here. And I was like, I couldn't have cared less. Right. Now I'm fascinated by it, but, but I was just absorbing this culture. And I took a lot of pictures and was just so blown away by the architecture and the symmetry and the design and like forcing perspective and just, and the photos were really pretty good. And, uh, the whole experience was extremely cinematic. And I had sort of, by that point, I'd sort of, you know, let the Super 8 movie making go. It seemed like it wasn't cool enough or something. And even though I was going to a high school that had a film program, had a TV station, had all the stuff. It was a brand new high school called Edward R. Murrow High School in Brooklyn. And uh, it was communication based. And I was like, yeah, whatever. But I took some film theory classes and that like really like turned on a light in my head, like different way to think about, you know, what a director does and the choices and the storytelling choices and symbolism in films and in interpretation of films. And so that really sort of made me start to think like this, this is something I'm very interested in, right? but it didn't seem like this was a realistic, you know, a target for me to aim for in terms of a career path. Yeah, that's, that's the interesting thing about it. I feel like, I wonder how different it would have been growing up now where you just see so many examples of like, anybody can do it because it, 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 it needed so much demystification for me growing up because it just felt like that's a thing that, somehow arrives at a theater completed, but I don't know any, like you just, 
it's like it's like food. You know what I mean? It's like no one. Right. If you live in the city, you don't know how to kill cows. You don't even see them, but you know they're at the store um, in right. in packaging with plastic. Um, how did you How did you uh, get your first cinematography job? I, I wound up going to SUNY Purchase uh, if to, to, for college, and uh, it, it was a great choice. I didn't start as a film major, but I thought, okay, well, I'll go. I'll take liberal arts classes, and I'll take a couple of film classes and see if this is for me. And um, and it was. And then I went through school and was primarily a, a cinematography major. It didn't really exist as an option. It was a director's program, but you did a little bit of everything. And, uh, you know, I, I wound up shooting a lot of people's films and did a lot of work with Hal Hartley, who's a classmate of mine who went on to be quite a prolific filmmaker. And I shot most of his early features, first five, six, seven features that he made after school. But, but even when I was in school, like as a senior, like, okay, I don't know, I'll graduate and then I'll, you know, I'll see if I can work on some movies, but I'll probably have to get a job at a certain point. Right. Um, it didn't sink through my head, like, you could do this. And, you know, it's, I, I've given a lot of thought about this these days, because it's, it's very relevant to many people's situation today, is that, you know, look, I'm a white guy, but I wasn't in the film business already. So, you know, I didn't have an uncle who was a gaffer or, you know, three generations of, of prop people behind me. So the industry was really closed to me, too. And I wanted, you know, I, I wound up getting jobs that worked for free. I PA'd and whenever I could, I would, you know, demonstrate that I know more. And, you know, you start networking, you meet other people and you say, hey, look, I want to shoot. And, everyone has a script they want to shoot. And, you know, this is in the very low budget indie world, non-union right. in New York City. And, uh, and there was a lot of work at that time. But there was this barrier to entry in terms of the bigger stuff. Um, right. And eventually I just, I met someone through, you know, friend of a friend or you know, someone on set, uh, a guy who, who, had a script he wanted to shoot and uh by that point i had i think i had bought my camera by then i bought a 16 millimeter camera and which one which one did you buy i bought the aton ltr 54. all right <laughs> sit on my shoulder like a little french kitten and just purr mm -hmm. best handheld camera ever um and i bought it you know because i thought I was doing a lot of camera assistant work and then occasionally like on documentary stuff that there'd be a, two days of pickups after the shoot and they say, okay, look, Spiller, you can shoot it, but you have to, you know, provide a camera package. So I would go and take whatever, you know, most of the money I was getting paid to shoot and, and rent someone else's camera. So mm -hmm. I tried to save some money and I borrowed some money from parents and grandparents. I think I still owe them. Uh, and then, uh, I, I, bought this camera package and that was one of the best decisions I ever made because now I was a DP and right. unlike the guy standing next to me you know at the craft service table back when we used to have those things um 
<laughs> you know, I had a camera package, so that that could set me above, you know, set me apart from the person also trying to shoot it. Right. And that was a it was a it was a fun little movie. We shot in two weeks, and it was all handheld. And we all this guy had his family had a lot of money, and we stayed at this incredible mansion that we shot in in North North Shore, Long Island. And, but a bunch of us would sleep in the same room. And someone told me at one point they woke up in the middle of the night and saw me sleeping on my back, but my hands were up like this. I was still <laughs> handheld. I was still shooting in my sleep. <laughs> you know what's funny? Every time I, I think about film, because I, I learned on, I mean, we shot on the CP-16 um, at mm -hmm. NYU. And then we shot, uh, oh man, I don't remember the model, but our sophomore year we shot on the three turret um, uh 16 millimeter cameras. Yes. Yeah, the Arias. There you go. And if you've never had the fear of wondering whether or not you loaded the film correctly, it's hard to call yourself a filmmaker. Like that, that whole feeling of like, I loaded it, we shot it, and then you have a day or two where there's like, maybe it happened, maybe it didn't. That pressure, that pressure is real. That's definitely something that people do not understand anymore. Yeah. And I mean, yeah. this was like everything from the, the student film that has five dollars to, you know, a $50 million movie. There was that. It's like a little bit of magic and a little bit of just like fingers crossed, you know, you've done everything right. You did your homework, you shot it and then you turn it over to the lab and you're all basically waiting to answer that single question of <laughs> did it turn out? Did it turn out? I mean, it's really it's as simple as that. It's like. You don't know. And at any point, you know, the, the, the loader could have flashed the mag. There could have been a hair in the gate. Someone could have screwed up at the lab. Like there's all these places where a single person or, you know, event could screw things. So until you saw it, there was just that sense. And also there was a huge amount of trust involved because, right. you know, now we're looking at stuff on these incredible monitors and it's like what you see is what you get. And, you know, as a DP, one of the things you're always doing, you know, if you were lucky enough to even have a monitor, was you'd be trying to convince the director that it's not going to look like that. Okay. Right. No, you're going to be able to see that detail in there. That's not going to be blown out like this or, you know, or right. the other way that's like, you know, it's going to be much darker than it looks to your eye. So there is a lot of trust and collaboration that, you know, it's just different now. It's just changed. Do you find that, um, I'm kind of, this kind of makes me want to hop ahead in the journey, but this question seems appropriate now. Do you find that your experience as a DP is helpful in communicating uh, what's happening on camera to writers and producers and actors? Or do you find that it's like this skill that you have, but you, you kind of have put it in your back pocket once you put your director hat on? You know, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, that makes total sense. Um, I think without a doubt, my experience, not only as a cinematographer, but, you know, the years leading up to that and working in different capacities on the crew, grip department, electric department, uh, and the camera department loaded, I pulled focus, you know, I've operated, I've pushed ollie, I've key gripped, I've gaffed, you know, so I have... I have a lot of experience and a lot of respect 
for the people who do those jobs on set. Um, when I first was making my transition from shooting to directing, you know, I think I was more comfortable on the, on the camera side of it. So there are definitely times where I probably had my hands in that person's mm. job description a little too much. Um, and there are certainly some people who I worked with who, who were just threatened by the fact that I knew, you know, I was, it probably as good a cinematographer as they were, maybe better. I don't know, but you know, there, there's certain tricks as a DP, you know, that if you don't want to talk to a director, there's ways that you can sort of, you know, smooth talk away, just go back to the monitors, you know, I'll call you when I'm ready for you. And, you know, people couldn't do that with me because I knew all those tricks. Um, but I think besides, you know, the sort of respect portion of this, uh, it made it easier to communicate my ideas because, you know, I'd heard them so many times and, and I spoke that language and I understood the tech side and the gear and, and, and I think my respect was palpable to the, the crew and, you know, you don't always get that on a TV show when guest directors come in. Some directors really don't bother to get to know the crew at all, which I think is a huge mistake. Big mistake. Yeah. But in terms of like, you know, articulating my ideas to the cast, um, producers, writers, I think it's definitely helpful. There's, as far as the cast goes, there's very few, I think, who actually want to know much about it right. um i'm always happy to talk about it but sometimes i've i've found myself you know in a very excited way describing what the you know the cool shot i'm doing is to an actor and i can see them sort of glaze over just like stop talking dude <laughs> I, i'm in a zone i don't care i trust that you're going to do your thing um so maybe after the shot is done you can tell them <laughs> but That's for sure good. in terms of like getting a job it's helpful that's been that was that's a big education for me in in the beginning of doing TV. Where it's like, okay, I really don't. You you're so excited and interested and have your hands in so many things, but like you have to you learn to recognize people only want to hear um, what relates to what they're doing, and and you have to like turn off all turn on and off all these different levers uh, to give them what they need. But then also some might want to hear more. And you have to decide, you know, you have to be ready to give it. Um, so the first thing, would you say the first, the, the largest cinematography job that kind of got you going with was Sex in the City? Well, no, that, that was actually one of my last gigs. Okay. I mean, that was the one that led to directing. The one that sort of jump-started the cinematography career was uh, this film that I did with my old classmate, Hal Hartley, called The, the Unbelievable Truth. Okay. And... Again, this is, you know, late 80s, um, indie scene. Uh, Soderbergh had just made Sex, Lies, and Videotapes. There was, like, a lot of interest in, you know, films of a smaller budget and that had a sense of style. And we shot it in 11 days. We shot on 35 millimeter, which you know, I was super excited about. Um, yeah. And we made it for, like, $61,000. So that sort of became like a story in and of itself. Right. Um, 
you know, here's this, oh, look at this movie, $61,000, 10-day, 11-day movie. Um, and we, uh, it premiered, I think, at the Toronto Film Festival and uh, sold to Miramax. And, you know, so everyone, everyone worked for free on the movie. Everyone wound up getting paid. It was like, that should have been front page news to me. Like, a deferred, right. <laughs> get deferred pay and actually got paid. Um, and, you know, certainly put me on the map in the, you know, the New York indie world as a DP. Gotcha. And so that, so then you prop, that was about, how many years were you working mostly as a cinematographer before um, Sex in the City was the final kind of jump off point to directing? I, I mean, I went up shooting for, for like 10 years. Um, so I don't know, I think probably shot like 20, 25 movies. Uh, I did a couple seasons of The Adventures of Pete and Pete as a DP, um, shot documentaries and music videos and some commercials. Once music videos sort of became ma mainstream, then the commercial world opened up to me just a little bit because they were bringing music video directors in to you know, add some style to commercials and so that was right. So was Leap of Faith the first directing credit? No, Sex in the City was the first directing credit. Okay, so you shot and then you did, they were like, all right, we trust Spiller, this guy knows our show, it looks good, the cast loves him, and let's, uh, let's give sort him of. names. <laughs> what, what happened was my, my agent at the time was like, uh, late, in the, late in the first season, he said, look, if, if the show comes back, I'm going to ask them to give you an episode to direct. And I was like, nope, I'm good. I, I like what I'm doing. <laughs> you don't need to, you know, I'm, I'm happy where I am. He said, no, you're going to do it. And, you know, at several stages of my career, there's just these like leaps of faith. You know, you mentioned name from other shows. Like I, I, I had to take and I had to be convinced to take. Mm -hmm. um, and I also DP'd that episode, which I don't recommend. You know, if you're gonna, if you're working on a TV show and you're already doing one job, it's probably, especially if it's cinematographer, it's probably best not to do that and direct your first episode. But I did it, turned out really well. And, you know, it's an, it's an incredible way to, to get your first experience calling the shots because I, I felt like I was up on a tightrope, you know, sometimes my eyes closed, sometimes my eyes open, but no matter what, the entire cast and crew was down there below me saying, you know, we got you Spiller, we got you. Right. You know, so, and that's, that was amazing. And it usually is not that way when you walk onto a new set that isn't your show, you know, right. so. It was nice that I was kind of brought into it a little more easily. And then I wound up doing two more episodes, the third season and four episodes, the fourth season. And by that point we had bought a house out here and um, moved to LA and hung up the light meters. Ah, there you go. How, how would you describe the job of the director? I love to hear, like, if you uh, had to 
if you were like at some dinner party with people who have no, no idea about what we do, what would you say to them to explain the job? Well, I mean, I probably answered it in, in the framework of a TV director because, you know, that, that's what I do. And, um, cause it's different. It's a different job description if you're shooting a commercial or shooting a feature. Um, but my job is to bring to life a, a, a script that, that I've been given that I didn't get to choose. Um, there's, there's a pre-existing world that I need to fit into and simultaneously expand. Um, I use a metaphor sometimes of like, uh, and this is, uh, this is for a show that's up and running. It's not like a pilot or anything like that, but right. you know, it's like you get to be the conductor on the train or the engineer on the train uh, between this station and this station. It's like the track's already laid. You know, we know we have to go there and it's, it's going to go beyond that. And there's, you know, 10 stops that happen already beforehand. So that history is there that you have to acknowledge. And, you know, as you're, you know, you're laying that track, you can slow down a little bit to, you know, take in the view at this turn or speed up a little bit in this section that's flat and kind of boring and, you know, sway a little left or right. But at the end of the day, you got to get to that next station. And the passengers can't suddenly be like, this is not like the train I was on for the first 10 stops. You know, this is messed right. up. So, you know, it, you have to, it has to be part of a continuum. You're, you know, it's part of a larger story and you want to bring something to it. You want to elevate it. You want to get your thumbprints on it. Um, you know, find yourself in the story. You know, finding yourself in the story is one of the best ways to do that. And that's right. part of the beauty of this job, I think, is that for me is like, there's, you know, I'm always learning. I haven't, mastered this yet i'm always learning how to do this job better um every ingredient is a contributing factor to how you're able to do your job every crew person every cast member every writer uh, and the particulars and details of the story you know are going to impact how you do your job and you can never know all of that and that's what's exciting, I think. Looking at the journey of your career, um, once you got going, you were going and you were doing a, a lot of different shows. Um, but what was it about, were you looking to be a producing director, um, like with the Mindy Project? Or was that something, was that another leap of faith in the same way um, that you would kind of transition to, to directing? Well, I mean, that, that was a big leap of faith. I, I think I didn't know that that was even a job, you know. Um, well, if you and, could and explain I, the job, too, because I, yeah. I think that would, yeah. Well, I mean, I'll back up just a little more just because, you know, when we, it was one of these, like, lucky moments in my career. Um, in between season three and four of Sex and the City, which was shot in New York, where we lived, um, we 
we were trying to move because we'd had our first child. We were, Melanie was, my wife was pregnant with our second child or, or we were trying to have a second child. So we wanted a bigger place. And we, we sold our apartment and thought we were getting accepted to another apartment and the co-op board turned us down. So we were suddenly homeless. And it, right at that moment, we were actually had all flown out to LA because we were shooting two episodes of Sex and Save the Shot here in LA. And, you know, it was my birthday when I found out we got turned down. It's like, oh, this sucks. Um, after a week of pouting, moping, I was like, well, let's just see what our money would buy here. Because we literally we were homeless. We were living at a standard hotel on Sunset Boulevard. And so on the weekends, we'd drive around, look at open houses, and we found this place that we loved. So we bought it, furnished it, and then flew back to LA to do season four of Sex and the City. Season four of Sex and the City ended, you know, a week or so before 9-11. Um, we were already scheduled to fly back here at 9-17. Um, right. And I was actually here on 9-11 due to fly back that morning. So that didn't happen. Anyway, so we wound up moving here to LA right after 9-11. So New York film industry, TV industry was gone for several months, it took several months to come back. Um, you know, it, it was just very fortunate that, that we happened to have time to move that way. Um, and I was reinventing myself as a director. So I had a great agent, who's still my agent to this day, Sean Frieden, and he, he got me a couple of gigs without, you know, having to do an interview or anything, just you know, on the, the basis of, you know, I had seven episodes of one of the hottest comedies on the air under my belt. And I was an unknown quantity in LA. And like, so I came for a little bit, I think I became a flavor of the week and, and Sean capitalized on that in the best possible way. And my first gig out here is Greg the Bunny, the fun, short-lived puppet show, live actors as well. It's like, right. okay, that's, and of course you come to me for that. <laughs> um, but the guy running that show was Steve Levitan, who I wound up doing a lot of work with over the years. So that was incredibly fortunate. Um, and the second show was Scrubs. And again, you know, sort of sight unseen. Uh, my agent also worked with uh, Bill Lawrence. Bill Lawrence is rep by the same agency. Bill Lawrence created Scrubs. You know, so he got me in with him. So the first two episodes of, you know, sort of brand new career in a new city, I worked with two of the top comedy showrunners in right. recent history. Um, right. So that was... That was a good way to start. Um, but for the first five years or so, it's like I couldn't get quite straight. Like the studio and the network are the same, the different who, these executives. I, I didn't know how to really play the game. Um, but, you know, I think the work I did was good and the, everyone seemed to like me and I was extremely passionate about it. And, you know, I look back sometimes going, damn, I'm so stupid. I mean, if I had really like known how to like take those meetings and you know, just sort of do the outreach. I think I'm naturally a, a shy person. I'm truly only comfortable on set. Like that's when you'll see a different side of me, you know? And uh, 
uh, I'm just a little more awkward in some of these social situations. Some other people I know, you know, there's people I've worked with, I see whose careers are skyrocketing. I was like, they know how to do that. They know how to like work those executives, you know, and get those bookings. And it's great. I mean, more power to them, but that's just not me. I didn't know how to do that. But a producing director, to finally get circling back, circle back to the question. Producer no, but that, that's, that's all great information in the journey um, because that, it's such a different, um, like for me having come from the indie film world where I had to raise money to make my films, I kind of recognized early, like I need to like talk my way into like pockets, right. <laughs> you know, yeah. for lack of a better word. And, and uh, it became like something that I put like almost first and foremost, um, like how do I sell this and myself? And because I, the work, unfortunately at the level that I was doing, it wasn't speaking for itself. Um, but you were, you had a great body of body of work building and you did 20 scrubs episodes, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken, yeah. right? So that, yeah. that shows that you were a trusted guy that uh, other people probably could trust as well, I imagine. Yeah, I mean, I think that there's definitely, you know, I've, I've learned later when I was in position to hire directors. I mean, when, when an agent is, is submitting someone that you don't know, it makes good sense to do your homework. You look at their resume, you call a couple people they work with and, you know, get the feedback and, and watch the episode. But, you know, honestly, sometimes it's hard to tell looking at an episode of an existing TV show because, you know, no one lets a director fail. You know, they may be a complete asshole. They may not have done their homework. They may be unprepared. They may be rude or dismissive to the, the cast or the crew. And still, because everyone is so invested in the success of that show, understandably, the episode will turn out okay. And even people who have no business directing a TV show their episode will likely turn out okay because the cinematographer steps in, the first AD steps in, the, the producer, the writer of the episode steps in, and, and collectively everybody, you know, makes sure, ensures that the director doesn't fail. Not in a like a we got you way, like a we got to keep working, you know, and, and get through this week or two weeks. Um, so, so, I mean, a, a producing director is, is someone who, may direct you know the the lion's share of the episodes but is also responsible for hiring and, and some of these descriptions will vary job to job case to case basis um the, the ones i've done i've been responsible for finding new talent uh, bringing directors to be considered uh for a show you think would be a good fit and a good fit has a lot of components to it and one of the most important, of course, is, is personality and, you know, your ability to step into an unfamiliar situation and get along with people, um, get the job done, bring something to it, elevate it. But, you know, I think the days of the, the artiste who walks on and thinks that, you know, episode 97 of Scrubs is their own personal movie, when it's not, it's a chapter in a larger story that they didn't create, you know, so it's like, yeah, you have to check your ego at the door and 
realize that the director is not the top of the pyramid in an episodic TV scenario. So I support where I work with the directors. Uh, I hire and support them mainly in prep. I really try to give the director their space on set. Um, I typically only visit if there's like a really big scene or someone is, someone's asked for it. And often it's the director themselves who says, look, you know, I'd like you around when I shoot this. And um, I, I really, my role is to support them. And, you know, especially as we got on in seasons on the Mindy project and sort of found our groove and really knew what the show was. And, you know, we're going to get picked up, you know, that's, there's sort of a, you, you can let your guard down just a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, so we could take a few more creative risks in terms of people who might not have that strong of a, a resume on paper. And you know, right. I was saying earlier about like doing a random episode of, you know, the, of a series that's done a hundred episodes and you've worked on it. It doesn't necessarily illustrate that you're a good director. It just means that you got a chance to direct and you weren't allowed to fail. So I'm, I'm often meeting with people or you know, sitting down with people who have only done a couple of shorts or they've done a totally you know, no budget indie feature, but they've got a voice or, you know, I, often I'm looking for people who traditionally have had a harder time cracking this nut of getting into this profession, you know, and for women and people of color, it's, it's, it's just been much harder. It's not been a level playing field. Um, so I certainly, you know, where I could search out people that, you know, weren't already on the studio networks list. Here's, you know, the typical choices. And, right. and also, kind of mentoring and supporting people from within already working on the show, but in a way that it's not like, okay, yes, you've been an AD for two years. Here's an episode. Like, you know, it's, it it can't be like a door prize. Um, So it's like, look, if you want to direct, I'll raise it with the executive for other executive producers, but you need to make your own film. You know, I can't in good faith, just give you an episode. I think those days are over. This is Simone Missick, and you are listening to Let's Shoot with Pete Chapman. How to Succeed as a Creative Professional is Pete Chapman's upcoming book about his journey as a director. What started in 1993 has been a marathon full of persistence and creative pivots, transitioning from indie filmmaker to teaching at NYU's acclaimed film school, to running a production company, to directing television and commercials, and ultimately eyeing a return to the feature films that gave him his start. A mixture of how-to, self-help, and inspiration, this book will be for any person eyeing a successful career in a creative art. How to Succeed as a Creative Professional is coming soon. I was talking to uh, some friends. We have uh, we have a mutual friend who's kind of new uh, to episodic, and they done an episode 
Um, and you know, the thing is on sets, people never know who knows who. And so they were uh, talking about this person, like the, the actors on the show were talking about this director. And I think they'd done maybe one episode where it went great. And then the second one may have had some more uh, complicated scenes, right? And they didn't do as well with those scenes. And they were clearly like, oh, it took all day. It was, you know, I think they just got overwhelmed and started doubting themselves and then started leaning in on things that they did not need to shoot because they didn't know what was actually required. Um, but it seems like no one ever tells that person, like, here's what you should kind of walk away with as the lesson. Do you think that there should be some kind of after action report or something for these for these folks or should they just like you know flap yeah, in the mean, that, that's such a good question you know and i actually i i think i know the exact details we could check that off camera but it's it's not right. important because we've all been there every every person who's directed more than one or two tv shows has been in that situation where for whatever reason, you know, your confidence is shaken and, you know, maybe you're, you're asking for too many takes or the writer's giving you a lot of notes and like you're ready to move mm -hmm. on, but you have to listen to them. And it's sort of, it's this weird position to be in. And if you lose your mojo, you know, it's really terrible because uh, right. people want directors who are confident but it's a hard job to be confident in because you may say, yes, boom, we got it. cut, check the gate. And then the writer says, right. oh, wait, can we do one more? Ugh, right. So sort of have to reset the whole thing. It's a really tough position to be in. But I love the idea of the sort of post-mortem, like here's what you could have done differently, or this is where we ran into problems. And this is what the perception was. What was your experience, you know? was had you been asking for cuts in that scene and not gotten any help from the writers or was it a performance issue or or was it your lack of confidence because there's not a you know when you're on set and that clock is ticking particularly if you're working with like child actors and you know it's a lot of pressure because it's not just like oh we don't want to work longer it's like no this is the law if that kid's going to walk off set you're done you know so you yeah. either get it or you don't um but you know, if, if there were, there's no way to measure, like, you've got it, except your right. gut. And right. often the gut of the person who's, you know, working with you on set. So yeah. it's, it's I a was, tough I was to be doing, I was doing something uh, uh, the other day, which will be many days ago once this airs, but it was a, the client wanted, wanted to get this thing in, a certain amount of time and I was like but we're going to edit it and they wanted to get the talent to get it in this certain amount of time and I'm, I, it's this tough thing where you're like all right I think that this is about to become a, a uh, it will have diminishing returns for all of us because <laughs> I don't believe they want to keep doing it and you have it I'm confident that you can edit it um, but then you're trying to navigate them and, and maybe do one more and get the actor to be like, just please, <laughs> you know what I mean? Just humor me for one, if you will. And uh, it's, a, it's a tough island. I like one thing you said when we met a few 
months ago. Ironically, that place, um, H Club, where we met, is closing. I know. I heard that. It's terrible. Yeah, man. Another victim of of every of COVID. Um, but I remember you saying you would defend. You also would go to bat for directors because oftentimes you might get to the um, uh, the fog of production and people. Oh, maybe executives or an actor may be saying, oh, this was, uh, uh, they may have a negative perspective on something and you're remembering that there was actually a real reason that had nothing to do with the director, um, which is which is great that you're there to do that. Yeah, well, I mean, it's, it can be a very lonely job. You know, you come in as a guest and you do your thing and then, you know, you get to edit for a couple of days and then you're gone and the episode lives on and goes through you know, everyone else's hands and they do their work on it. And you, you don't know how, how it's being perceived. And it's very easy to blame the director for things that are not working in the, in the episode for whatever reason. Most of the time, it's a script problem. And, you know, if, you, if there is not a producing director, the director is often very vulnerable to just being blamed and occasionally even being, you know, blackballed and like, okay, you're not going to work at the studio. Now you're not going to work at the show, but the studio is not going to hire you for a couple right. of years. And that's a really crappy, unfair thing. And for sure, there's some people who, who probably shouldn't be directing, but there's a lot of people who just didn't have an advocate in their corner to say, Hey, remember three weeks ago and prep when we were saying this scene is too long or the episode is going to be too long. You can't now complain when the story doesn't quite track because you had to take out so much of it after the fact. Right. It's like if we had been able to, you know, make those cuts on the page, you know, and then shoot it differently on the stage, your story would track. So, you know, it's, 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 I think it is one of my responsibilities when I have that job is to stick up for the director after the fact. And uh, I've proudly done it more than once. <laughs> my last, my last question on, on the, on that uh, position. Um, is that a, is that a normal position for a half hour comedy, a producing director? No, it's, I mean, it, it it isn't. I mean, it, in this case, it was because it was Mindy, Mindy Kaling's first show uh, of her own that she created. She was the star of it and the head writer, along with Matt Warburton. Um, so initially, it was very interesting because I had never done the job in this capacity. I had been the producing director on, on series where I also directed the pilot and I stayed with the show. This one, I didn't direct the pilot, came on as a gun for hire, but I was an executive producer. So, you know, that title becomes with a lot more responsibility. And, and again, it's sort of open to interpretation and, and on a case-by-case basis, defining what your role will be. Mindy, as I said, never done the job before. And Matt Warburton, had, who's also a great writer, had never done the job before either. So the three of us were sort of left to navigate and figure out like, okay, who's going to do what? And post the first season was really tough because 
you know, it's a first season show. You're trying to figure so much stuff out. Everything, the shooting hours were longer. The, the writing hours were longer. The, the post hours were really long. And, you know, we were sort of at sea. We, you know, we made our way through it really bumpy. We got the pickup for second season. And fortunately, uh, David Rogers, who was a producer editor on The Office, who Mindy had a wonderful relationship with, and you know, I knew a little bit, he came on to the show and it was just like, okay, good. You're going to take care of this because there just weren't enough hours in the day. You know, and Mindy was like, you know, she's one of the hardest working people I've ever met. And, you know, to think that, you know, there are days where she would start off like doing live press, you know, on New York time and then come to set and get ready for a 7am call. Yeah. Shoot till three in the afternoon, then go to the writer's room, stay there till seven crew wraps. They go home. Then she goes to post. She's there till midnight. So it's like, when do you sleep? Or there are like three of you, because I don't know how she did it all. But, um, so yeah, in that case on a half hour, it definitely made sense, uh, to have a producing director. What's been your most enjoyable or memorable experience as a director or producing director or cinematographer? There's, that is such a long list. I mean, it's really um, so incredibly lucky. And I have to remind myself these days when you know, I'm not working, like me containing my jealousy when you were describing, you were doing something the other day, I said, what? How the hell's Chapman working? You're on lockdown, man. You heard of COVID-19? Um, it's like, I love this job. You know, I, I, I would do it for free. I have done it for free, uh, even recently. Um, like doing little things with my kids now, like shooting, they have a shared Instagram page and like they ask me to help occasionally, like set it up or help light. I'm like, I'll go, okay, yeah, I'm available. I'll give you a good rate. Um, Right. So it's like, I just love the work. And I often think about, you know, because I did documentary stuff, you know, which is a whole new exciting thing where you travel and you have just a different experience in, you know, getting to know people and sort of behind the scenes access. And, you know, so I have a lot of cool stories and fun tales related to that. I mean, the, and I've been incredibly fortunate that most of the shows that I've worked on, I mean, literally like 90% of every episode I've ever worked on has just been, you know, joyous and, you know, you're surrounded by people who, who want to be there. You know, right. that's the thing a lot of people don't get maybe at the start of this. It's like, this is a hard business. You know, it's like, it's not for everybody. There's highs and lows, there's, you know, dry spells, you know, you're self-employed. It's like, you know, it really, it's sometimes it's hard to stomach the, that uncertainty, you know? And it's extremely competitive, it's highly skilled. So it's like, you have to want this. You have to want to do this job. No one is like, yeah, you know, I'm stuck in the family business. I have to be on set 12 hours a day. It's like, okay, you can do something else, you know? So generally you're, you're surrounded by people who are as passionate about their job as you are about yours. 
and that's so different from many other people's mm. work experience where it's like everyone's just like damn when the hell are we out of here you know it's like i can't believe this day's never gonna end this job sucks you know not that there aren't jerks in this business there are but people who aren't good leaders and you know things are frustrating but in general it's like my worst day on set tends to be better than a lot of people's best day at work right. so well, well, i'm one is tough i got uh i mean it was you and paris um who were in the orientation that got me going and the things that uh I mean, I, I, I have three pages of notes that early on, I, I, I keep them in my directing backpack. And just every now, let much less often now, but I'll still just open them up and read them just to center myself. You know what I mean? Um, particularly on those days where it might be one of the more uh, challenging days and, and not, not technically, but uh, psychologically. Um, yes. And, you know, one thing that uh, what you guys also illustrated was that like that attitude is infectious and important in being able to weather through whatever gets thrown at you because if you don't have it it trickles down and it gives other people license to uh go to the worst angels that they might choose to uh call upon and how they deal with everybody um would i i guess my i got Two final questions for you. Um, one, what three character traits do you think have been most important for you in, in navigating this journey? Hmm. Well, uh, one I think is uh, my ability to get along with other people. Maybe that's partly the chameleonic mm. characteristic that I have. I can adapt myself to situations and uh, not lose my cool. You know, I often, because I did a lot of doc work where things got hairy a lot and, you know, dicey situations and bullets flying and stuff like that. It's like, okay, no matter how things are going on set, I'm probably not going to get shot today. Right. Um, <laughs> right. Yeah. You know, so this sort of like perma smirk, you know, it's like, okay, good. You know, we're, gonna be okay and I, and I think it people read it as calm and that's a good force to have so so I guess that's sort of one with a with a tag on of calm um, uh, I love solving problems I think mm -hmm. I, and I love building things you know it's like I, I my fantasy is just to have a wood shop and I watch these YouTube things these guys are just like incredible saws men and women just make do these incredible projects i'm so so envious would love to do that but i love you know collaborating i, I love like here's this here's this problem how are we going to solve this um and that's the fun you know that's like when you're on a show and everything's going smoothly and you're you know a producing director so you're not actively directing every episode you, you almost want things to go wrong. It's like, or, or someone to say, yeah, well, you know, Mindy's got to be in New York for three days. It's like, oh, great, we have to redo the whole schedule. Yes, you know, something, <laughs> something to do. Right. Um, and then I love being surprised by what other people will bring to it. You know, directors who 
come up with a shot on their very first episode on a show I've been doing for five years. And I never thought of that shot. It's like, oh, damn. It's like, yes, good. I love it. Um, third quality. <laughs> I mean, I've, I've added like three qualities to every one of these answers. But uh, I'm generally an optimist. Um, you know, I, I have a sense that things are going to be okay. Most of the time, I can go down a rabbit hole of catastrophizing very easily too don't get me wrong but but in general you know i trust that that things are going to be okay and it's only a movie so there you go and what's next for you sir well you know that's an interesting question this time of year but uh or this this the state of the world right now you know but i'm supposed to be doing the mighty ducks uh as producer director for Disney Plus, um, shooting in Vancouver, and doing, we've already made one episode, we have nine more to do, and it's it's got a lot of uh, logistical challenges in the pre-vaccine, post-COVID world of filmmaking, you know, so it's going to be interesting. We'll see how that all goes. Um, you know, there's one thing I... I'm like on the game of the sort of pre-questions and stuff. And I thought a bit about it. And if there's time for me to say it, um, yeah. you know, I, I spoke a little bit about how, even though I happen to look like I happen to look that, that, you know, as a young kid out of school, I felt like there were barriers to entry for me. And I hesitate. I didn't join the union for many years because I was like, you know, it wasn't, I didn't want to join as an electrician and have to work 25 years to become a, a cinematographer. You know, and I felt like right. there weren't things in place, you know, and there are a few now that, you know, that sort of bring people in and like an apprenticeship program. And I, I really believe that, uh, you know, this business should reflect the world and should reflect this, certainly this city and, you know, whatever city it's based in and not be, you know, uh, monopolized by any one group or you know, ethnicity. And right. I think part of the way to do that is really bring people in early, you know, like this is a viable career, you know, it, it there's, you could learn to be an onset grip or electrician or set dresser or scenic artist or, you know, in a couple of years, and a, and, a no, and a lot of it could be on the job training because the work is so specific. And, you know, that's where tomorrow's directors come from, you know, in the TV world. Right. Largely, they come from within the body of the crew that's already there. You know, that's, that's how I did it. It took me 15 years to get to say action. It doesn't have to take everybody that long. But I, I wish that, that we could find a way to you know, have programs so that people are supported. And and some people will go think, you know what, this is not for me. I hate waking up at five in the morning or right. I find it boring or whatever. Or they might start training as a grip and go, you know what, the art department looks really cool. I want to do that. But you have to be exposed to it and you have to, you, know, you have to have access and you have to have support, you know? And right. I think that 
there's loads of initiatives and I'm members of, of numerous boards and uh, you know, programs that, that are creating opportunities for people. And those are absolutely wonderful. I'm super proud to be associated with them. And I think hand in hand, you know, getting people you know, into this career early in whatever department, not only, you know, cause it doesn't have to lead to directing, it could lead to producing, lead to something else, or it could just lead to a, a wonderful career in a department. But I think that's a way that, you know, will we'll guarantee more success for first time directors if they've spent five years on set instead of yeah. their first time being on set, the first time they're saying action, you know, yeah. that, that often doesn't I mean, go well. You're spot on. I, I, I often, I have a, I have a joke when I talk about the job to, cause now I'm as a guy who went through four programs, I now get brought back to talk to the programs. And I often say, I have a moment on every shoot where I say, ah, oh, now I'm directing. And it's never a technical thing. It's always like um, some kind of uh, personality thing that's going on that is requiring a very nuanced navigation of of egos and and feelings and if i don't get this moment right it doesn't matter how well i've planned out the rest of the day exactly. they're not going to want to hear what i've got to say and and that and having run a business and made feature films like when those moments would happen I, I can identify them. And that, it feels like that's what you're talking about. It's not like you have to be around it in order to recognize these little things that might take you off track. Like I, I, it might've been in the orientation. I, I, someone mentioned, you may not want to laugh too hard at the table read because you don't know if that's going to make uh, number two feel like, well, why is number five getting the better lines? <laughs> and, and, and you were just, you thought it was a funny joke. And right. you would never think that that's a, that's a calibration that you have to make. But you learn that there are so many emotional connections to the work and to the politics and the dynamics of a set that almost every moment is a potential pitfall. And not to make that threatening, but it's just a, uh, it's a reality. And it's a reality of any, anything. I, I, I said to my wife, like, once you put two people together to talk to each other, enter politics. Yeah. <laughs> you know? So uh, it's, I, I'm, I'm in full agreement of, of folks being aware and having an opportunity to witness it to some degree without stakes, you know? Right. And then... Yeah. Uh, uh, get it get their shot well it's another way that a producing director can be of assistance too it's like half my half my job description was like pointing out landmines it's like hey mm, right don't do this or here's this this scene's coming up i know in the past it's, that sort of thing's been an issue you can av avoid this you know right so support and information and opportunity well it's awesome man i i Thank you again for the time and hopefully get to work with you on something uh, soon. Yeah, I'd love that. Um, and then we'll, we'll find out next time we'll, we'll do some drinks or something, you know? <laughs> Sounds good to me, Pete.
What's up, people? This is Pete Chapman. Follow me on Instagram and on Twitter via at Pete Chapman. Follow the pod on Facebook on our Let's Shoot with Pete Chapman official page and hit up our mailbag with questions, suggestions, or hey, donations if you're feeling like it via Let's Shoot with Pete Chapman at gmail.com. And just in case you need to know how to spell it, that's Pete with the last name C-H-A-T-M-O-N. All right, folks, I hope you enjoyed that interview with Spiller. Um, A few things before we get out of here. I would like to point y'all towards scriptation. I had a a message in the mailbag from my man in Detroit, Shecky. I hope that's your real name, but uh, Shecky wanted to get some information about some of the pre-visualization uh, software that I might use. And since um, Spiller is the one who introduced me to scriptation, I'll direct y'all toward that. It's really great because it allows you to update your script electronically, to go paperless, um, and to basically transfer the notes that you make from draft to draft to draft. And for whether you're doing episodic TV or or film, um, there's just a constant uh, need to organize your thoughts, both creatively, both uh, from a camera perspective, from acting beats to props to even if you have dialects or whatever, you can record uh, notes into scriptation. But for me, it's the ideal place. All of my scripts live within that app. And it's kind of ground zero for me uh, as a director. The other thing I would point people to is Hollywood Shot Designer. That's an app where I'm able to either lay in floor plans from uh, an episode uh, from the from the art department, and then I can place cameras and uh, actors and move them around in the space and basically develop a an overhead floor plan where you can see the movements of everything in the scene from the actor to the camera uh, with any notes that I make, and I can generate a shot list that I will share uh, with my uh, collaborators, my DP, my AD, uh, my script supervisor. And it's super helpful in uh, communicating uh, what we're trying to do. And in a world where who knows what it's going to be like when we get back to set, perhaps shortened days or contactless collaboration, I expect that sharing of information will be the insurance of achieving the vision that you have because there just won't be a, you just need to take advantage of time and prep and make sure that you can step into um, your shooting days locked and loaded. Last but not least, I have to thank the talented team that helps to bring every episode of the pod together. That's my wife, Kelly McCreary, who has lent her voiceover talents to the pod. That would be Tristan Nash, who is our technical guru. And that would be Jada George, who is our administrative guru. And uh, can't do this at all without this team. Um, and thank, you know, we thank everybody for tuning in week to week. Um, spread the word, share it, rate it on iTunes. All of that matters. Um, we're doing this for the love, but we want to make sure as many people hear it as possible. So again, thank y'all. And we out.